Blog Talk Radio. episode of the Good Life Podcast with Mike Safosnick. The show can now be found on iTunes by searching Mike Sappho. A few weeks ago, I was on another vacation down in Colombia, a little time in Cartagena and Medellin. And while in Medellin, I was very fortunate to hang out with a bunch of locals down there. A friend speaks Spanish, a guy we work with has a Colombian family, and they gave us a complete tour of the city. And there's always this ever-present ambiance of Pablo Escobar. He's not spoken about, but you can feel his presence. And it's weird. We went to a bunch of museums. We did all the sightseeing tours. The museums omitted him from the history. And obviously, he's such a compelling, violent figure. But we went to his grave, and we visited the house, and we did all that stuff. And on the flight home, a buddy of mine asked, he wanted to read a good Pablo Escobar book. So the only one I've ever read was Killing Pablo by Mark Bowden. He's like, okay, sounds good, sounds good. I signed on to Goodreads, the app on the iPhone, and I looked, and I read four or five of Mark Bowden's books, and I look at some books to read, and there's two or three more of them. Now, I don't want to sound like some stalker fan, but I'm like, wow, I'd love to interview him. And I know the past, I guess, year or two, all I interviewed was athletes, maybe 140 different athletes, and I, reading is such an important part of my life, you know, 52 books in 52 weeks. So I took a shot in the dark and emailed Mark Bannon. Within two hours, he wrote back. I'm humbled, honored, and privileged to have him on the show. One of the greatest authors of our generation, Mark Bowden. Mark, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for that generous introduction. First of all, you threw the email and you said you were in Vietnam. Were you there for pleasure or for work? I was there for work. Uh, I was um, on the semester break from the University of Delaware, where I teach, and so I'm, I'm researching a book. Could, can you tell us about the book, or is it like a little under wraps? It's, it's a little under wraps, but it's a, it's a, it's a Vietnam War story um, that I've been working on for about four or five years. A very complicated and um, challenging project. Now, Mark, there's, I want to get right to, even though I want to sit down with you for hours and hours and talk about all your books, um, the Pablo Escobar book was one that is intriguing and it's fascinating. And there's a ton of drug, I guess, quote unquote, drug lords. What brought you to Pablo Escobar and made you want to write about him? Well, initially it was, Mike, the fact that I learned um, that the United States military was much more directly involved in the hunt for Escobar than I had realized. And I think that most people realized. And so that was, frankly, what initially drew me to it, but then as I began to work on it, um, I know I still think that the story of Pablo Escobar is one of the most uh, important and amazing stories of the 20th century. Now, when you decide to write this book, did you want to, did you, I know it started killing Pablo, complete history on him, but 
what do you do? It sounds so, I guess, maybe amateurish on my part. Do you just go to Columbia and start asking people like, hey, tell me about Escobar. How does that <laughs> even work, that process? It's, it always, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what you do first, Mike, is you begin um, researching and you read everything you can find on the subject just so you know what's already been done. And then as you're doing that, if you're like me, you begin jotting down the names of people who were directly involved in the uh, hunt for Pablo Escobar. I also had the advantage of coming off of the book Black Hawk Down, and I had met a number of uh, important folks in the special ops uh, community in the military who I knew or who had told me that they had played roles in, in that story. So I had a little bit of a head start in that way, but otherwise, um, you know, I began the way I usually do, which is just to collect the names of the people who were are known to have been involved and go start with them. And you always, I always end up interviews with people by saying, who else should I talk to? Now, were they, um, I guess, welcoming of you? Did they give you information, not the United States part, people down in Medellin, and did you go down there? Yes, I did. I made several trips to Columbia to research that book. And, yes, the people who I met um, were... Uh, happy to talk to me. At that point, I had made considerable inroads with the DEA agents who were directly involved and with the military people who were involved. And in fact, when I traveled to Columbia, I traveled with a former Delta Force operator who had been instrumental in the hunt for Escobar. So he had um, entree with uh, a lot of the key figures in the story who I needed to meet. In different documentaries and even that show Narcos on Netflix, it's weird how he's depicted sometimes as this ruthless drug warlord, which he was, but he it's going to sound silly. He comes off lovable and not, I guess, kind of charming. While doing these interviews, what was your take on him from the people in Colombia? It was that, you know, and in real life, uh, you know, people rarely fall into you know, comic book categories like villains and good guys. In fact, you know, the people who knew Pablo Escobar liked him personally. Uh, as long as he was not um, coming after you, he could be a charming friend. He was also, despite his um, sadistic violence and, you know, I think ruthless ambition, he was uh, very much in love with his children and... Uh, and I think wanted to be seen by the people at large as a benevolent figure. He's called the Robin Hood down there. And when I went to the grave, I went there with uh, the Pablo Escobar's grave with two or three locals. And I said, hey, I, I don't want to be the cliche American, but what do you guys think of him? And they all said the same thing. He's violent. He's bad. But we'll never forget what he did for the city, for the country. Is the Robin Hood mantra, is that a... A good depiction? Is that why he's, I guess, adored down there still for what he did for that country? A lot of people do admire him for that. And, you know, I think it's hard to ascribe one particular motive to him. But in part, if you read about him, you realize he had ambitions to be uh, a powerful political figure in Colombia. So a lot of the um, projects that he undertook in Medellin to help poor people um, were motivated at least in part by a desire to get votes. In fact, he did run for 
what is the uh, Colombian Congress and was elected as a as an alternate, which is a uh, you know an important position down there. So I think you can't totally rule out the possibility that he was trying to do good when he was building homes for the poor or or creating soccer fields for children. Uh, but by the same token, he had a um, a personal motive as well. Now, you mentioned in the beginning of the interview that the U.S. Delta Force got involved. Was there a significant moment when the U.S. decided to make him priority number one? And why was he number one priority when the Ochoa brothers and there was other known drug dealers? What made him the number one priority? And was that moment like, hey, we need to get him? Well, the, it actually came, um, uh, sort of crept up on the United States, which had been assisting the Colombian government in dealing with the threat of narcos, I think when Pablo began directly targeting the Colombian government, uh, that got the United States very interested in him. And then when he when he shot down the Avianca airliner in an effort to kill the uh, Colombian presidential candidate, uh, 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 Gaviria, who eventually was elected, um, there were Americans on board that aircraft that were killed, and at the time, terrorist acts against airlines were just beginning to happen around the world, and, and this was a top priority of the United States, uh, apart, quite apart from their interest in stemming uh, drug trafficking from the South. So these two interests really coincided. And it was also, Mike, in part because the Colombian government became willing to allow uh, the United States to help. They began, I think after that airliner was shot down, they began to realize they were dealing with something that they could not easily handle on their own. And that actually perfect segue into my next question. If the United States didn't get involved, do you think Colombia could have ever, I guess, taken him down? Like, what would if the United States doesn't get involved? Listen, we don't want to get involved. Is Pablo Escobar, is he still ruling right now? Did Colombia have a grasp of really stopping him without outside help? I think at that time they definitely needed outside help. I can't say for sure that they would have been successful without American help. But I think to a man, when I was in Colombia, uh, very, very proud patriotic Colombians will say that it was the help of the United States that enabled them to get Escobar. And, and I think that the, the involvement of the United States really struck fear into not just Escobar, but to other drug traffickers down there, because they had the ability to kind of sway the judiciary and the Congress in Colombia to, uh, well, to make things easy on themselves. And they knew that the American judicial system would not be uh, as, as, as uh, capable, they wouldn't be as capable of persuading. So... Yeah, I think the American involvement was key, and without a doubt, uh, the American involvement led directly to Escobar being killed. You mentioned like there was such a fear of extradition. I remember that's a focal point in Narcos, and even in documentaries and books, Escobar was very afraid of. Can you tell everyone, obviously you can tell it better than me, how he ended up basically in his own jail that he made, and how he just escaped from his own jail? Do you mind telling everybody about that? Yeah, I mean, Escobar, as I said, had huge political ambitions in addition to being the seventh richest man in the world. And at some point, uh, and this is after Gaviria had been elected president, he realized that he was either going to spend the rest of his life as an outlaw 
doing battle against the Colombian government, or he was going to have to strike some kind of a deal that would uh, preserve his ability in the future to reemerge as a, an important figure in Colombia. So he negotiated a plea with the Colombian government, essentially agreeing to plead guilty to a very minor crime, and essentially um, got the Colombian government to allow him to build his own prison, uh, staffed by his own prison guards. And, and the reason that Colombia went along with this is that he had been, Escobar had been conducting a reign of terror in Colombia, kidnapping the children of prominent political leaders in the country. And the whole country was uh, afraid of Pablo Escobar. So when this deal was made, the promise for the Colombian people was that the violence would stop and that Escobar would, uh, you know, attempt to play by the rules. And, and, and that was why uh, Escobar was willing to make the deal, but it was only a two-year prison sentence and the Colombian government got something out of it as well. So that's how that came about. When Pablo Escobar was eventually killed, did the U.S. Delta Force have anything to do with it? I don't think that they claimed that they did, but do you think they had anything to do with it? They had something to do with it in that they were embedded with the uh, uh, blockade of Busqueda, the, uh, the police search block that was created um, to hunt down Escobar. And that... That unit was uh, trained and, in some instances, actually led by Delta Force operators. And in addition to that, the the most important aspect of it was the um, surveillance unit that was uh, uh, attached to the Special Ops Command went to Colombia and, and flew a specially designed aircraft over the country that was capable of of pinpointing, this is pre-cell phone era, but they were ca capable of pinpointing Escobar's location uh, by turning on his phone remotely. So that was a, uh, a capability that Columbia, the Colombian government lacked, and I, I don't think that they would have been um, as successful in hunting him down if they hadn't had that help. He's famously listed, and you just said it, he was at the seventh richest, per, uh, richest person as Forbes, what happened to his fortune? Did anyone know? You know, I think uh, Escobar had lost a lot of his fortune uh, when he was on the run because he uh, uh, essentially was just running from house to house. And what had happened was, in addition to the search block targeting him, a, a vigilante group, which was aided and abetted, I think, by uh, the Colombian government and the United States government called the, uh, the Los Pepes, had begun assassinating everyone associated with Escobar. So his bankers, his financiers uh, were all being killed. So I think that uh, a lot of his money uh, was probably scarfed up by people who had been in his uh, uh, hierarchy or in his chain of command. And I know that when uh, Escobar was killed, the government uh, negotiated a deal with his family, which involved turning over uh, the bulk of his fortune to uh, to the country. But uh, beyond that, I haven't, you know, investigated exactly where it all went. But I don't think that anybody is. Uh, I don't think his family, for instance, and anyone in particular, inherited that that fortune. Now, doing all these interviews and engrossing yourself in this story, was there any one story that I guess stuck out, whether it be funny, 
fascinating, interesting about Pablo Escobar that I guess no one's ever heard before that was just like, wow, I never would have thought that about him? <laughs> well, there's so many things. Uh, of course, now since I've written it, I hope people have heard about them. But, you know, he, this is a guy who had so much money, he literally did not know what to do with it. So he built himself a uh, playground, uh, a finca, out in the countryside, which he populated by with exotic animals from around the world, <laughs> including uh, hippos. He really liked hippos. So he had hippos flown in from Africa. And in fact, in the years since his death, these hippos have broken out of that finca, and there are now in Colombia herds of <laughs> hippos uh, who are thriving in that climate who uh, would otherwise nev never uh, be there. I also thought it was really interesting. I had heard that Pablo, when he was in his self-imposed uh, imprisonment uh, at La Catedral, he, um, uh, kept, he, he tried to write a book, and I thought, oh, I've got to read this book. And it turned out that the book that he put together was not, it didn't involve writing at all. It was just collecting all of the editorial cartoons that had ever been drawn of him. And, and binding them in a very fancy uh, uh, edition. And, and he had it bound and printed and distributed, I guess, among his, his friends. So he was someone who you know, clearly enjoyed uh, his notoriety and, and, and didn't seem to mind when he was uh, criticized or, or, or poked fun at. He, he just loved the fact that he was the subject of those cartoons. One last Pablo Escobar question. Do you think personally, your opinion, did his death help or hurt the city of Medellin? It helped it enormously. It helped the entire country of Colombia. Pablo Escobar was a, a legitimate enemy of the state down there, and, a, and he came very close to seizing control of the Colombian government. He was an enormously uh, nefarious character, and I think that ridding themselves of Escobar served notice to other very wealthy drug traffickers that, you know, trafficking um, uh, cocaine uh, to North America was one thing, but trying to topple and take over the Colombian government was another. So I don't think it did anything to stem drug trafficking, but it definitely was a huge benefit, not just to Medellin, but to the, the country. Did his death, did it at all, I don't think it did, but obviously you would know better, did it at all limit the exporting of drugs, or was it more of a trophy, like, we got Escobar, the U.S. involvement is kind of out of it, like, did it do anything to stop the drug trade? It had no effect on the drug trade, uh, <laughs> nor does do any of the efforts that uh, we undertake down there. You know, the fact is that the demand is so strong for these narcotics that, uh, and people can get fabulously wealthy uh, manufacturing and distributing them, uh, that's going to keep going on regardless of who gets killed or, or captured. But having said that, and I said this in my book, you know, Pablo Escobar became such a threat to the nation of Colombia, it far transcended the drug trafficking trade. Uh, the fact that he was killed was not just a trophy accomplishment in the war on drugs. It was really a rescue of the popularly elected government in Colombia. The government in Colombia has never been and isn't today a perfect thing, but it is uh, uh, probably the most successful democracy in that region and in that part of the world. And that country remains a, a bulwark in uh, South America. So 
you know, I think getting saving Colombia from the likes of Pablo Escobar is an historic accomplishment and one that will, you know, that has meant and will continue to mean a great deal. Now, Marcus, if I can have you for two more minutes, three more minutes, maybe five more hours. Yep. I'm just kidding. But I'm a sports and reading are two of my biggest passions in life. So anytime I just interviewing more authors, I think you're the fourth or fifth one. And I always ask this question: Was there ever a story that you wanted to write? And you really wanted to go for it, but for some reason or another, you never wrote it, and it bothered you. <laughs> um, you know, I honestly, Mike, I can't remember one. Uh, you know, I've been doing this my whole life, and and I had the great good fortune to work for the Philadelphia Inquirer when I was young, uh, which was a you know such a great newspaper that uh, yeah, of course, there were always stories that I would I think boy that would be cool, I'd love to to do that, but I was never limited by anything other than, frankly, my own time and my own talent. If there was something that I wanted to do, I could usually convince somebody to let me do it. And so now, I mean, I've, there are plenty of stories around the world that interest me that I think, gee, I, I know I could do a good job with that, but I, I'm only one person, and I can only do so much. So when I commit myself to a project, for instance, at the, at the beginning of the Iraq War, in 2003, I had just signed a book contract and committed myself to working on a book about the Iran hostage crisis. So here I, I was planning to spend three or four years traveling to Iran, which I did. But at that time, the, the, vast, the, the great public interest and most of my journalistic friends were focusing on the country next door, were focusing on Iraq, while I was off uh, you know, working in I Iran. So when you make these decisions creatively, what you want to do, you do, you know, foreclose opportunities elsewhere. Has your life, or not life, have you ever felt truly, because you researched Black Hawk Down, you just men mentioned going to Iran, you down in Colombia, ever in any scary situations that you think, like, holy crap, why am I writing Black Hawk Down? Why am I writing this book? Were you ever put, was your <laughs> life ever in true danger? <clears throat> well, you know, I guess uh, I... I emerged okay, so I don't can't really say for certain <laughs> that my life was in danger. But I tell you what, I was one scared guy when I was in Mogadishu reporting uh, Black Hawk Down. Uh, it was a very dicey situation, a lot of fighting going on, and I was about the only. I know I was the only American in um, Somalia at that time, and there was a great deal of animosity toward Americans. So I, fe I felt very much threatened, and in fact, to be honest. If I had known before I went how dicey that place was, I probably wouldn't have gone. So it's, I, I'm lucky that I was too ignorant to uh, to avoid it. And there were some times back when I was working on um, the Escobar book, uh, Killing Pablo. Uh, you know, this was in the uh, the late 1990s, and the FARC and the ELN were still very much at war with the government of Colombia and were heavily engaged in kidnappings. Uh, foreigners and especially Americans. So there were times when I was in certain places in Colombia where I felt very nervous uh, about being there, but uh, thankfully nothing happened. Last two questions. When you wrote the finish, did you get to interview uh, Obama or no? I did. I, I sat down with the president for an hour and a half in the Oval Office, and it was a, a terrific interview. How cool is that? Like, I, I feel this is awesome interviewing Mark Baden. How is it going to interview the president? 
It was great fun, you know, and, and, I, and I like Obama, and it, it was something that I was excited about just on a personal level, and getting to go, you know, sit down in the Oval Office and interview the president is pretty cool. But, you know, once I got there, he put me very much at, my, at ease. Uh, I had a limited amount of time. In fact, he ended up giving me more than I'd anticipated. And so I didn't really have much time to uh, sort of bask in how awesome it was. I had to, I had work to do, and I had a limited amount of time. So we kind of got right down to it. Uh, it was terrific. You know, I think mostly it was terrific because I was working on a book, and t- interviewing the president was key to the story that I was trying to tell. And his willingness to help, uh, his ability to answer my questions off the top of his head in tremendous detail, uh, it was fascinating and important, and you know, I still uh, have a very fond memories of the moment. That's awesome. Now, I am an obsessive reader, so give me one of your books to read. Now, I'll tell you, I already read Black Hawk Down, Killing Pablo, Dr. Dealer, and The Best Game Ever. So give me one book of yours I should read and one book that you recommend to anybody as one of your favorite books. Okay, well, I would recommend that you read Bringing the Heat, which is my uh, account of the 1992 Philadelphia Eagles football team, but I think it would actually be of any interest to anyone who likes pro football. I spent three years with that team and with those guys, and uh, I'm very proud uh, of that book, which is, I think, a very different kind of look inside a pro football franchise. So that's one that I would strongly recommend. And another, um, well, since you're a New Yorker, you know, I would recommend uh, Robert Caro's book, The Power Broker, which is one of the greatest works of uh, history and journalism that I've ever read in my life. Now, are you an Eagles fan? I am an Eagles fan. I, you know, I used to, years ago, I was the uh, beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer covering the Eagles. I played football when I was a kid. Uh, my uncle is Bobby Bowden, the head football coach for many years at the Florida State Seminoles. And oh, really? uh, so I... I, I come from a football family, and uh, football is a big deal in in, uh, in my house. You know what? So next time I have you on, because you got to come on again, we'll talk about how the Eagles need a quarterback, and we'll talk some Bobby Bowden stories. Sound good? <laughs> Sounds good. It'll be easy. <laughs> <laughs> that, listen, this, this was an absolute pleasure for me. I interview a bunch of athletes, old wrestlers, and it's you know it's fun, but it's generic. To interview you, especially about this one book, because I really wanted to talk to you about every book, was just it made my day, made my week, and I'm just honored that I even uh, was able to speak to you, man. So thank you so much for being so accessible, writing back, and calling in right away, man. I really appreciate that. You're welcome, Mike. It's been, it's been a pleasure, and good luck to you. Thank you. Have a great day, sir. You too. Bye-bye. The legendary Mark Bowden. I didn't know he's Bobby Bowden. He's related to Bobby Bowden. I'll be getting him on the show next, <laughs> talking some Florida State football. Um Everyone knows the movie Black Hawk Down. Fascinating movie. The book blows it out of the water. It's so detailed. And the fact that he was there, it's scary because the situation he depicts in the book is scary. And we just spoke about Pablo Escobar for a little bit. Reading Killing Pablo, and I know it's different because I was down there. You, you feel more of the sense of the community. It's, it's funny when you mention Pablo Escobar down in Medellino, anywhere in Colombia. And you don't want to be the generic tourist like, hi, what do you think of Pablo? But when you're in a museum and they have the history of Colombia and it conveniently omits that time. And it's the same thing in Germany. They 
omit the Hitler times. When you ask people down there, it's so funny. You'll ask, we, we hung out with a group of people down there, and I'm like, hey, about Escobar. And they all say, oh, he was very, very mean, very vicious. But we'll never forget how, how much good he did for this country. So he is admired and he is feared. And I guess it's the whole Bronx tale thing. Would you rather be loved or feared? Or Michael Scott, you would rather be <laughs> feared so much that they love you. Well, anyway, interview um, Mark Bowden is just, he's one of my favorite authors. I'll be continuing to harass Anthony Bourdain to come on. And sadly, Andy Ricker who was on my last show, the celebrity chef from Pock Pock. I'm just harassing him with calls to get Bourdain on. So everyone, thank you for listening. Have a good day. Follow me on Twitter, at Mike Safo, M-I-K-E-S-A-F-O, and on iTunes, subscribe to it, so then people think I'm really cool. M-I-K-E-S-A-F-O. Everyone have a great day. Thank you.